Thanks for joining us for part two of our macro roundtable with several of the top minds in online finance today. If you haven't yet watched part one of this roundtable discussion, where Daniel DiMartino Booth, Lynn Alden, Stephanie Pomboy, and Ivy Zellman debate the biggest concerns about the precarious status of today's economy, social stability, and financial markets, head over to our channel at youtube.com Wealthion and watch it there first. It's really one of the best discussions we've had yet on the Wealthion channel. And it also sets the context for the investment perspective that these experts, as well as our partners at New Harbor Financial, share in this video. Before we begin, though, please take just a moment to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Those simple steps really are a big help to us if everyone watching this video takes them together. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our macro roundtable. Are we kind of at a wild e coyote moment for the average household where we've had this kind of relative tranquility of the past 20 years. Yeah, it was punctuated by the global financial crisis. But beyond that, it's kind of been this relatively tranquil era of prosperity uh, in America and in many other developed nations. And I think we might argue that one of the reasons for that is because we were pulling a lot of tomorrow's prosperity into today. But are, are we at that inflection point where, you know, the chickens start coming home to roost, the piper has to be paid, whatever analogy we want to come up with here. But may we be staring at a decade of substantially lower, you know, kind of quality of living for the average American household. Danielle, I'll start with you. So, Adam, I think that the risk is definitely there. I wish it was not the case. Part of, of the driver here is the political division that is as acute as it is now because the inequality divide has been widened to the extent that it has as both political parties in the country side with corporate America, big corporations, big box retailers, you know, the, 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 the sacrificing of the small business sector in the post-pandemic era. There's a lot of bitterness about, uh, that, uh, about in, in, in that respect. Lower middle income, they've been pushed into lower income. That's being exacerbated by housing expenses and prices at the pump and prices at the grocery store being as high as they are. If you're right above that rung of Americans who qualify for all of the social safety net programs, but yet you don't, you're not happy right now. You're not, and, and there is something to be said for having to be cognizant of how far you can push the inequality divide without something societal coming back to haunt you. And that though, that's what keeps me up at night. That's what really bothers me. It's that there is this, there's this undercurrent of unrest and dissatisfaction. And you get the sense whether you're, you know, you're talking about, you know, Palm Beach or the, the, the excesses are in your face of, of the wealthy and the way they, they live their lives. So it, it, it does concern me. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I can't suggest you what the solution might be at this juncture, again, I think the Fed is going to be forced to not come to the rescue of the economy for the first time in more than 40 years. So that's going to be a game changer to the extent that they've backed themselves into this corner by monetizing all this stimulus. Now they've got inflation on top of a slowing economy, but I don't think that they necessarily have the tools. We forget that it took fiscal and monetary stimulus combined to react to the pandemic and that, that, that fiscal aspect is simply not going to be there if we're six months outside of a midterm election that promises to be even more contentious and add fuel to the fire of what I've just described. Monetary, right. policy, yeah. monetary policy didn't get us into this mess by itself. It was fiscal and monetary policy. Agreed. And the fact that fiscal policy, to your point, can't do anything, they can't do anything with midterms coming. You know, I think that the, every, everybody's focus is on the Fed. But, you know, the amount of stimulus, you know, is raining money and it unfortunately didn't go in the, the neediest hands, you know, with respect to the liquidity. But one question for you, Danielle, thinking about social unrest and the, the risk of a tipping point, I think that is there some mechanism that, they, that there would be support on both sides of the aisle if they were to see something catastrophic coming to fruition? I mean, it, it would seem like just like an emergency type of uh, another band-aid, another, you know, another way to 
try to step in in the fiscal arena. So I think if we were to see a wholesale freezing in corporate bond issuance that trickled its way into immediate pink slips and much more downside than what we're seeing in stocks, even to a greater extent, I think if you were to start to see some kind of a feedback loop mechanism come into motion, that that could compel both parties uh, because it has in the past. Emergency situations do indeed trigger these things. But but again, bear in mind, this is I, I fear these midterms are going to make the 2020 presidential election look like a walk in the park. Hmm. And I'd love to dive into that, but I fear we don't have enough time to really tug at those threads. Real quick, though, for you, Danielle, when we talk about something breaking, right, Powell hiking until something breaking, is your expectation that when something breaks, he'll reverse to a dovish policy stance again? No central banker in the world is going to allow systemic risk to become unleashed and not do anything about it. You don't watch the global financial system implode. And... The, the corporate bond market and this black box that's mentioned of the, the Chinese debt market and the fact that Europe looks like it's going into recession twice in a row before being able to ever bring interest rates technically out of the negative. There's, there, are too many, there are too many interlocking pieces right now and two great big nations who are hoping that something breaks in the US economy so that they can take a geopolitical moment and make that into geopolitical history. So in that sense, Powell cannot let systemic risk come unleashed because then you're talking about the sanctity of reserve currency status. It's, it's a bigger question, Adam. Okay. All right. Um, Lynn, going back to you on sort of this larger, you know, your assessment of the social vulnerability that, that I just sort of ran through that laundry list earlier, you know, are, are we potentially looking at, you know, maybe like a lost decade ahead of us for the average American household, or do you have a more sanguine outlook than that? I think at least for asset prices, that's a, that's a really key risk. And so inflation was always the limiter, right? We've had a 40 year period of structural disinflation, lower, lower rates, uh, pushing up asset prices, uh, every sort of disinflation or deflationary event, the Fed could come in and, and liquefy markets. Fiscal stimulus could come, could come in and liquefy, uh, you know, the consumer, especially in 2020. Uh, and and with inflation as high as it is, those tools start to have visible costs to them. Uh, and so I think that's that's the thing going forward. And going back to the point about you know to what extent the stock market versus the credit markets versus recession kind of you know impacts Fed policy. I think one way I look at it is that. You know, st the stock market going down is by no means a trivial matter, especially for an economy with a twin deficit that's so reliant on consumer spending. It's that I think that, you know, Jerome Powell can't get up in front of Congress and say stock prices is down, so we have to, you know, be more dovish. It's that the stock market going down eventually leads into credit markets going down, eventually, you know, causes that cascade where then something breaks and Powell has to come in and be like, you know, due to, you know, recession indicators, we have to, you know, be more dovish. Uh, and so I, I do think that, you know, kind of my risk outlook for the 2020s, uh, you know, not just the year ahead, but just in general, is the, those more stagflationary types of environments, uh, monetary policy alone not being enough, uh, and, and contention within fiscal policy about how to best deal with it. You know, I think that there are some bipartisan issues they can explore, like, for example, payroll tax cuts, for example. You would think that that'd be somewhat bipartisan because Democrats could use it to, you know, support labor. Uh, and Republicans can use it to support tax cuts, uh, but you don't really see that type of kind of common sense policy. Instead, you have kind of the pork and, and the and the debates they have in other areas. So I think that they have tools available to them if 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 kind of cooler heads prevail. Uh, but given you know just fiscal deficits where they are, inflation where it is, uh, debt levels where they are, uh, I do think overall that this is more of a decade of payment rather than those tailwinds continuing. Okay, great. So it does sound like you think you know tougher sledding ahead for the average household going forward. Um, Ivy, I want to give you a chance just to count to comment on housing here kind of in, in this theme, um, because again, you know, we had sort of talked about um, is, is the growing inequity in the housing market potentially going to lead to some, you know, social ill here, some serious social ill here. So I'll let you comment on that. And then Stephanie, I'll come to you and we'll sort of wrap up with the, the big question I know that's on most viewers' minds here is given everything we've talked about on the macro side, um, you know, what does an investor do? And I'd like to translate that question into sort of what assets do you think are, um, you know, likely to do better than others given the type of macro environment you foresee over the coming, uh, let's say, two years? 
Um, but but Ivy, I, I would like to give you a chance to just comment in any way, shape, or form in the housing market there on the social end. Yeah, I think with you know 65% home ownership rates right now, those people that are in a home that have seen significant wealth creation, that they now we're, we're seeing the benefits reflected in a significant cash out refi to help fund uh, spending. But it's that 35% that are renters that are you know really going to be feeling the pain because rent inflation is uh, three times normal, if not more, in certain cities relative to trend line. And I think it's uh, very disheartening for um, today, uh, the tenants that are getting uh, notices of renewals that are in the high single to low double digits, that they're going to be uh, forced to likely find alternative shelter, again, household consolidation. And I think that that's really not something that people are contemplating. So I think it's really a very challenging environment and only exacerbates the divide in terms of the inequality. Uh, for those that are fortunate to be homeowners and benefiting from the inflation to those that have a variable cost that they're going to have to, you know, contend with much higher um, of their overall income going towards shelter. So I think it's going to be very problematic and could, to Danielle's point, lead to more social unrest because don't think that the um, stimulus factors that we talk about with all the amount of cash that people receive whatever in whatever form, child care tax credits, et cetera. But they were also, people didn't have to pay student loans. People weren't evicted and no, people were foreclosed and they weren't foreclosed. So that, that clouded sort of what the true underlying strength of the consumer is. And don't forget there was a period where many people were in their you know, homes, um, hunkered down, worried about you know, dying from COVID. They weren't spending anything. So we had sort of forced savings in some respect. And so I think that as we unwind, I think to, um, Stephanie's point, you know, you're going to see a lot weaker underlying um, attributes that the consumer will start to visibly show, and yet their income is not rising as fast as overall costs and shelter being one of the biggest ones. So long-winded answer, but definitely problematic if they continue, the landlords continue to step on the gas, and they're stepping on the gas because they believe that everything is so tight that that enables them to just continue to push forward when it really isn't what appears to be the case. The consumer is not as healthy as I think that people perceive them to be. Yeah, I mean, that's just the recipe that list you just went through is the recipe for social unrest. Um, and I have no clue here, you know, about the breaking point and what the ultimate trigger might be if we do indeed reach one. But you guys have all made a great case that don't discount a social breaking point being a contender in here versus just an economic or a financial one. What, um, was the rail, what about in LA, you know, think about the, the looting and the stealing along, you know, the rails with all those Amazon packages. And, you know, we all look at that and like, oh no, thank God it's not in my backyard, but there's no question that, you know, whether it's the crime rates are going to rise. I mean, it, we're, we're seeing it in various pockets and that could really materially get worse with people get hungry and they don't have shelter. So it, it's concerning. All right. Um, all right. Well, Stephanie, coming to you, feel free to add anything to that. But but if, if we can, in your answer, sort of get your thoughts on, all right, if you're an investor watching this, who's concerned about the the, the major trends and, and, and macro risks that you guys have elaborated on here, um, where are potential, you know, assets, sectors, et cetera, that you might encourage them to consider looking at? Okay. Well, to segue from the macro discussion to those investment ideas, I guess I would just... Um, argue that I, I do think you would see fiscal stimulus if the wheels came off uh, the markets. I think they would come together with some bipartisan plan. I think Lynn you know, laid out a couple of suggestions that would probably get bipartisan support. Um, you know, it inures to no politician's benefit to have uh, the economy lapse into recession because of a meltdown in the corporate credit market or the stock market, um, which would necessarily happen um, if those things unfolded. So that being said, I think the question then becomes, from my view, um, how big a fiscal stimulus are we talking about will be required to be coupled with um, you know, monetization by the Fed. In other words, lather, rinse, repeat, we're gonna do over everything they've done every time they've inflated a bubble and then inadvertently burst it and then had to clean up the mess after. Um, I think the question this time is just how long it takes them to figure out they're making the same mistake and how big the response is gonna have to be. So if you take, if you believe that as the, as the framework, um, then it would lead you to safe havens 
um, like gold, for example, because you would see uh, substantial further debasement in the in the dollar, um, and it would obviously not just be the dollar. This would be a global uh, currency debasement, you know, uh, competitive currency devaluations like we see every time. Um, so hard assets and you know, I would defer to Ivy about, um, you know, whether we have an air pocket in housing and then we reserve, you know, uh, rebound because people are going to want hard assets and uh, housing is obviously one of those, the largest one. Um, but then getting into sort of specifics in the market, um, I would be serially avoiding consumer discretionary stocks. I think that's an area, as I mentioned at the top, where expectations are just so far ahead of the likely reality. Um, the other one, if you believe the scenario I laid out, um, would be financials. I mean, there's a lot of bullishness about the financials based on what everyone anticipates will be a steepening of the yield curve, notwithstanding the fact that the yield curve has relentlessly flattened throughout this entire taper and the um, pricing in of you know multiple rate hikes this year. So I think that's sending you a message that uh, people who are clamoring into the financials are clearly ignoring. Um, and that's before you layer in the prospect of a deterioration in credit quality, which if you know my forecast for a substantial slowdown or even a recession in the US comes to pass is obviously gonna happen as well. Um, so you know, in terms of places that you can protect yourself, as I mentioned, gold, um, real estate, although I, I defer to Ivy on how to invest in that if she thinks that that's a place to be ultimately. Um, and then I'd probably be overweighting uh, emerging markets and resource, particularly oil producers, because I don't think oil prices are going down anytime soon, even though you'll have demand destruction in terms of uh, slowdown in global uh, growth. I think um, given what we're seeing with, you know, environmental policies in the West, uh, oil prices are going to continue to uh, remain very high. So I'm kind of tempted uh, if I can throw out a really harebrained idea to eventually get long Russia, because that's going to be the, the most levered way to play an upturn in oil. But it's, you know, that's something you do with money that you could light a match to. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great, Stephanie. And, you know, you just underscored that we didn't even talk about Ukraine and that kind of geopolitical risk in this discussion yet uh, or today. We'll, we'll have to save it for a, a different roundtable. Uh, Danielle, I saw you doing a lot of nodding as Stephanie was talking there. So I'll go to you next. Uh, what else, if anything, would you add to her list? Well, I think staples are going to be a safer haven just because there are going to be essentials that are going to have to be covered by the the household budget to the extent that they can. I mean, and that is, it, it's a fact of life. So I would look for strong balance sheets inside the staples space. Uh, I certainly haven't let go of, of any of my gold. And and I would, I, I would again, uh, I, I'm, I'm reiterating what, what Stephanie said. I would also add, however, that, you know, if, if worst case scenario comes to pass, I look for any and all, you know, I'm what I'm about to say, Adam, I look for any and all opportunities to buy into cheap municipals when the entire space gets shellacked because there are a lot of there are a lot of states and municipalities out there that have been very fiscally prudent throughout and they're gonna it's gonna be the baby with the bathwater being thrown out. So I always look to opportunities for kind of look up towards the center of the country but to the left of Illinois and there are some great opportunities out there that that I would be looking to in that space as well. Okay, good. I was going to ask you if you were still uh, yes. in favor of munis, and it sounds like you are, you know, in, in the right not location. the ones that are going to blow up, but yes. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and maybe almost it sounds like be poised maybe with some cash to, yes. to jump in if, if they all go down for a bit. Absolutely. Um, all right, uh, Ivy, I'm going to come to you about uh, real estate. I'll let you close on that, though. So, Lynn, let's go to you next. Uh, so, I, you know, I've been fairly bullish on healthcare and consumer staples and some of these kind of non-cyclical value areas. Uh, in addition to energy producers, I like the energy transporters, the higher quality ones with with decent credit scores and you know good handle on their debt. Um, because I don't think we're gonna you know U.S. energy policy you know given high oil prices, I think that I think some of the pressure on some of the producers is maybe waning to some extent. And supply uh, it, it looks pretty good for some of those pipeline companies. Um, I do echo gold as a pretty good environment, especially as 
you know, as the economy continues to decelerate, as you see PMIs roll over, as you see leading indicators roll over, uh, gold looks pretty well positioned in this environment. Uh, and then emerging markets are one of my kind of risk-on areas. I've been liking Brazil. I've been liking some of these other markets uh, for the the you know kind of the riskier side of my portfolio. And I think as you eventually trow and then turn up, uh, you can look at things that were drastically oversold. So I do think that Russia could be attractive. I think some of the oversold growth stocks could be attractive uh, in the next rising PMI environment. I'd be bullish on Bitcoin again. So I think there are you know a, a bunch of different kind of layers depending on how far you want to look out on this. Uh, but I think that I think the 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 era of broad U.S. large caps going up is is, is somewhat you know more challenged going forward than it has been over the past ten years, and then more broadly over the past forty years. Okay, um, real quick before I get to you, Ivy, on real estate, uh, I just toss a question out to anybody who wants to answer it. Um, it's two questions. One is, how concerned are you about a substantial market correction in the relatively near future? And by relatively near future, I'll, I'll say the next 12 months, right? It could happen at some point in 22 or, or early in 2023. And, and along with that, uh, how do you feel about cash right now as a position in a portfolio? And I'll let anybody chime in on that if they want. I'll hop in real quick just to continue. So right. I think, um, you know, as long as we're in this declining PMI, declining, you know, leading indicator environment, uh, I think we are at risk of ongoing correction. Uh, I, I don't think it's very favorable for asset prices. Um, you know, I'm not maybe as bearish as some of the, the you know, the, the outright bears out there because, I, you know, you're measuring it in a currency that I think is going to devalue significantly over this decade. But you can certainly have these air pockets where you go down 20%, 30%, maybe more. Um, so, you know, for that reason, even though I, I, I've often joked that cash is like the most speculative asset that I own because it's something that I hold knowing that it's going to lose value, uh, but that I hold it anyway because I'm kind of speculating that some of my other assets that I actually want to own might lose value more in kind of a near term, kind of six to 12 month period. So I do use cash as a volatility reducer, a rebalancing tool uh, in this environment. So I, you know, I think that you know, you you go forward. You have seven percent inflation. You have roughly zero yields. You know, some some types of assets have a little higher yields. You know, you're getting devalued. But if you if you have stocks go down, you know, notably, then then cash ends up outperforming for a period of time. So I'm I'm not particularly bearish on cash with a six to twelve month view. All right, great, Ivy. Let's now come to you for real estate. Uh, you know, sort of general outlook as you think. Uh, I think we're looking sort of with the investor mindset here versus sort of the homeowner mindset. And I think one of Stephanie's questions was, there's a lot of reasons to to want to own real estate in the type of environment that we're talking about. But if we get into some, you know, rocky uh, periods with the financial markets, um, could there be an air pocket under there, you know, in the near term? So what do you think? Well, you know, thinking about sort of six to 12 months while we're seeing the supply really drip to the market, I think that um, investors will find real estate to be a better hedge than, let's say, equities or alternative um, assets that we, we've certainly seen risk on that's now becoming risk off. But the risk would be that if you're in, in a period where the supply is rising, you will see prices correct. So I think that you can almost draw within the map of the US, there'll be places that are safer, like the blue states, where you just don't have as much supply coming and where you have inventory that will remain extremely tight. I think that if you can um, get your hands on some real estate, it could be a, a, a one of the best relative returns. But I think the areas where supply, the pipeline is really big. I think there's a lot of risk that those markets, especially the concentration is not only within, let's say the Southwest, the Texas, and Arizona and you know uh, Idaho mountain states, but you also have concentration risk within the, where they're they're building, like in the tertiary markets. So I wouldn't want to be an investor doing a strategy to go after new supply in the third ring of any market. I would be looking more selectively within the areas where the institutional capital is not very prevalent. So you could still have a relative to your point, you know, with Lynn's point about relative return. You know, cash may not be. Um, attractive or you're losing value in cash because it's, you know, you're at zero and 7% inflation, but on a relative basis, you know, some of the real estate might be safer and you may not make a return, but you might hold your, your capital and, and you do have a cash flowing asset, assuming you can find tenants in a tight market. So real estate near term in the right locations could be an attractive asset to be investing in. 
It's just a question of being careful not to get where the capital has been so targeted right now. Okay, great. Well, I've got one last question to ask all of you. Before I do, I'll just toss it out there. I know several of you are meeting each other for the first time live uh, here on, on the Zoom. Uh, if there's a question that you would love to ask someone else on this panel that I haven't thought to ask yet, you're more than welcome to do that now. Stephanie, how's Miami? Ah, uh, close. I'm I'm in West Palm. I'm, West Palm, okay. I'm, I'm a spectator to the the lavishes and the riches that you alluded to in Palm Beach. It's good, you have to come visit sometime. My best friend is there, I'll be there soon. Okay, well, you have to let me know. Yes, indeed. It's been too long, so. <laughs> Stephanie, the reason I asked that question, Adam, is not to be cheeky, but it's because Stephanie's emblematic of this migration that we've seen uh, yeah. um, in a post-COVID world that, you know, I, I worry about the states that have these massive pensions and the laws that have pushed people out because I can't imagine that that, that, that that wave does not continue as a factor of time if we go into recession. Well, and wait till they raise taxes. You know, New York, right, well, yes. you know, I left New York because it was expensive when I left, but it's only gonna get more expensive. And it's not like the quality of life there was improving. So, <laughs> well, know. as someone living in California, uh, we're seeing the exodus happen every day here, so. But even though you're seeing the exodus, the housing market is as strong in California as it is in many other parts of the country, which is really kind of mind boggling how that could be the case. You know, if all this, if everyone's leaving California and New York is really strong too, you can't find a house in any part of the, you know, five boroughs and tri-state area. So that's where the, you know, confusion lies is if everybody's leaving those states, then why are they so strong? Yeah, and if you're a prospective first-time home buyer in these states, you're you're just tearing your hair out right now. Yeah. So, Adam, can I add one thing? Absolutely. For all of, you, for all of your viewers, I would I would if, if you don't understand what the standing repo facility is, please study up on it because it is the one thing that is going to give the Fed more ammunition than you think the Fed has. So I would just I, I would do your homework there. I agree. All right. Um, I am going to, uh, next time I interview Danielle, we'll go deep into that to, to let you help people really fully understand that. But in the short term, yes, everybody go go Google the... the, the uh, standing repo facility, that one. Sorry, <laughs> standing repo facility, sorry. Um, all right, well, look, in wrapping up here, um, if people have enjoyed this roundtable, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and think uh, pretty much everybody watching has thought this was fantastic. Uh, if people would like to learn more about each of you in their work, where should they go? Lynn, let's start with you. I'm at lynnalden.com and at Twitter, uh, at, at Contact. Okay, great. And as you guys mentioned these, I'll put the URLs up on the screen during the editing process. Uh, Ivy, how about you? Um, Ivy at zelmanassociates.com. Great. Stephanie? Uh, you can find me at S. Pomboy on Twitter or at Macromavens www.macromanandthestock.com. <laughs> All right, and Danielle, I, I think you're known to send out a tweet or two, right? I, I, I tweet from time to time. I've been known to do it at all hours, in fact. Um, and other than that, www.quillintelligence.com. Of course, of course I'm right. at And sorry, what, what is your Twitter handle there too? It's, it's at Demartino Booth. And actually I have a private Twitter handle for, uh, for our QI Pro clients. It's becoming uh, quite interesting, but private, so. All right. If folks want to learn out how to get on that list, where should they go? Should they go to your website or? Come to quillintelligence.com. I'll, I'll tell you how to get in the private feed. All right. Well, ladies, thank you so much for doing this. This has been wonderful just as a spectator here. Uh, but just uh, I had huge expectations for this and you guys exceeded it. I hope we can have you back on to do this again at some point in the future. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody watching, definitely go check out all these ladies' websites. Uh, if you would like to see them come back on the program to do another roundtable format like this, this was our pilot one. Let us know your thoughts in the comments section below. 
Other than that, uh, please help support this video, getting out to see as many people as possible by hitting the like button and then clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Ladies, thank you so much. I cannot wait to do this again with you in the future. All right, now's the time on the program where we speak to Wealthion's endorsed financial advisors to get their feedback on what our roundtable talked about, but also more importantly, to talk about what the markets have done in the past week. And boy, have they done a lot. I'm joined as usual by the lead partners at New Harbor Financial, Mike Preston and John Lodra. Hey guys, thanks for joining. John, why don't we start with you? What did you think about this panel, which honestly I think was really one of the best discussions we've yet had on this Wealthy on channel? And before you answer, I should flag for folks that the discussion was recorded less than 48 hours before uh, the Russian military action in the Ukraine. We're now recording this uh, the day after the night that it all happened. So we've got a little bit more context than the uh, ladies had there. So John, what did you think? Yeah, Adam, uh, wonderful panel. Um, you assembled a, a really great uh, collection of voices and, and, and minds and insights. Uh, we've had the privilege of being, um, you know, kind of uh, guest commentators with each one of those uh, guests in, in separate interviews with you. And to have them all together at once is a real treat. Um, always learn a lot from from from, from those great minds. Um, yeah, no, and and to, to your point, the, there have been some very significant developments since you've recorded that. You know, most notably, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but but as, so far as the commentary and the comments that um, your panel made, um, I think they're they're timeless in, in the sense of where we are currently in the market cycle, irrespective of what did or didn't happen as as concerning as the events that transpired overnight uh, into today have been. Um, uh, and, and the big picture, I think, woven through all their comments is that we are in a very um, distorted marketplace, uh, everything from valuations to credit spreads. Uh, of course, the common thread there that I think each of the, and in real estate, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about real estate because that was talked about in pretty good detail. But a common thread there was the, you know, influence of the Fed and central banks and, um, you know, the role there over the last bunch of years to, to create the distortions that we're now having to um, kind of navigate and contend with. And I think to every last one, even though there were subtleties in the differences of, of you know, exactly how things play out, um, was that there, you know, the market's probably being too complacent in terms of um, what the Fed and central banks are likely going to have to do um, to um, address things like inflation. And, you know, the takeaway there is that they likely will not be as much a friend to financial markets as they have been in, in recent years, because the need to, to stamp out other problems like inflation is far greater politically and otherwise, uh, and that uh, their tolerance to let things um, drop or weaken is far greater likely now until something truly breaks. Um, and it was talked about, for example, the credit market. If the credit market truly and, and you know, seriously kind of seized up, that would be you know, kind of uh, perhaps the, the uh, turning point where, where some of the tightening policies that have been talked about would have to be uh, truly shelved. It is notable that you know, three um, uh, Fed governors in recent days have, have reaffirmed um, kind of the hawkish talk, um, even as recently as today, even, even with the Ukraine um, crisis unfolding. Uh, it has been mentioned that, you know, that will maybe need to be taken into account in the policy actions. But that's kind of the big picture takeaway that I think I and hopefully your listeners uh, took away from, from the, the conversation. All right, great. Uh, and I do want to get to the specific action that transpired today, because it was truly pretty historic. And also like, counter to probably everybody's expectations when the day started. Um, but Mike, let's go to you for anything else you want to add to what John said. And, and, and uh, I just want to react to one thing you said quickly, though, John, which was you, you talked about how each of the speakers essentially said they expect the Fed to tighten until something breaks. Uh, I didn't hear any of them say, I ex expect the Fed to tighten until inflation is tamed and the situation is brought under control. They all basically expect that we're going to reach some sort of fairly substantial systemic breaking point, uh, you know, in the sort of next chapter going forward from here. So I, I really took that as a lot of pessimism from each of those four experts. So Mike, going to you, um, anything to add to what John said there? 
I think John John summarized it really well, but just a couple uh, quick thoughts. Um, each one of those the speakers seemed to believe that the economy was was weakening. Uh, Lynn Alden said, you know, it's likely that we have a stagflationary outcome. We, you know, we agree. You've got high prices and a weakening economy. It's not a good situation for consumers. It's uh, at the same time, you shouldn't expect the Fed to be accommodative and to, and to bail the markets out or the economy out. The, the, the Fed has to rein in inflation. There's high political pressure to do it. I think it was Steph that said uh, the economy will likely surprise to the downside. You know, that's that's almost certainly true. And uh, Danielle said something like, um, you know, Powell may actually allow a recession. I mean, can you believe it? You know, the Powell put, we all think the Fed won't even let the smallest wiggle happen in the market. And um, I would not be too complacent with a market that's still down only about on the S&P, about 11%, just over 10%, hardly even in correction territory at valuations that are higher by far than we've ever seen before in our lifetimes. So uh, a, a dangerous place, particularly if you rely too much on the Federal Reserve, who almost certainly has a mandate now to rein in inflation. And um, so, yeah, I think we're going to see some surprises. Okay. And, you know, you can kind of interpret their commentary there as sort of like, hey, it's different this time this year, right? That this is going to be the year that the Fed is not going to be able to, the Fed or China or whoever sort of bailed out the system in the past is, is going to step in and do the same. Uh, and that inflation has introduced a whole series of constraints that make a lot of things that were possible beforehand not anymore. And I think that's largely true. Um, that said, uh, it doesn't mean that sort of business as usual in the markets isn't over yet. And uh, John, I just want to now focus a little bit on today's action. So we're recording this uh, after close of the market on Thursday. Uh, and, uh, you know, overnight, Russia basically engaged in, in what it called special military operations. Um, other people might call it uh, something more aggressive than that. But it really was sort of a shock and awe campaign to take out a lot of the Ukraine's um, key military and communications uh, infrastructure. And as you might expect, uh, the markets really didn't like that in the overnight markets. Um, most of the major indices were down around 3% or so. Uh, gold went bananas. Um, it had it just peaked above $1,900 an ounce. It got as high as like 1970 an ounce I saw in the futures market. Silver was screaming higher. Oil was screaming higher. I think oil was up like seven or eight uh, percent, you know, in the late evening. Uh, we then opened, and uh, markets opened down pretty substantially. Uh, but then, you know, they uh, started clawing their way back, and uh, everything closed green. Um, the S and P was green. I think a little bit over one percent. The Nasdaq closed up like three point three percent. Uh, just things you wouldn't think would happen if the world was truly concerned about a major military operation that could, you know, ramp up the threat of, uh, uh, of you know, multinational uh, warfare. So um, it still remains to be seen, still a very fluid situation. Um, I, I'm predicting there's going to be a lot of volatility going forward. But by the end of the day, yeah, all the major indices were green, led by the usual characters of, uh, you know, big tech companies. Uh, and gold and silver uh, came down off their highs. They all closed uh, in the red. Uh, oil came down an awful lot. Um, so uh, again, I, I think if you had placed, I think most people's expectations at the beginning of this day were completely shattered by midday and then you know just totally decimated by the end of the day. Um, love to get your commentary on this, especially as somebody who's sort of trying to manage capital through all this. Yeah, um, crazy, crazy is the only way to to put it, Adam. I guess fitting for you know the 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 enormity of the the events that took took place overnight. Even though we it wasn't news, so to speak. Um, you know, we're no geopolitical experts, but you know, citizens of the world, um, you know, this is a big deal, right? It really is. Um, you know, and I, I think the geopolitical events and ramifications will 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 tremor for a long time and probably get worse before they get better. But again, we're no, but. You know, it's funny how, not funny, but markets tend to blindly um, behave in a cliche-like manner, I guess is, is what we observe. And there's a, a time-honored cliche to, you know, sell the rumor and buy the news and there's very, various, you know, for, you know, variants on that. But, you know, kind of, you know, in other words, sell on the rumors of, of war, buy on, on when the bullets start flying, right? And that's kind of what happened here. 
I mean, the moves were, you know, the, the only, the most uh, immediate thing that I can recall as to markets across the board doing a complete flip like this in the span of, you know, pre-market and, and close of the next day was right, right after Trump won the election. Um, you know, um, stocks tanked, gold shot up a gazillion, <laughs> you know, gazillion dollars. And uh, by morning and by the next day, it had all reversed in, a, in an equally um, large way. That's really kind of what this, this market tape behavior today reminded me of. Um, and geez, it's, it's, you know, certainly not, um, you know, there was some, you know, obviously there was a, a presser today by President Biden. I didn't get to watch it, but I certainly saw some of the news clips. And I think the general consensus is that the, um, the, the heavy-handed, uh, you know, hard, hard-line sanctions that were promised were kind of all bluster and not much uh, teeth and bite. You know, uh, Russia has not been evicted from the SWIFT system, uh, which would, would be a, a really material uh, economic, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, bite to them. So I think the market maybe said, you know what, well, there's no teeth here, so maybe it's not going to be as much of a showdown as 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 we would have expected, perhaps. Um, you know, I don't know what to make it. Frankly, it's a geopolitical theater that we. Uh, but the you know the the market reaction is just absolutely um, eye popping. You know, stocks did a complete reversal. Oil was up. It went from eighty eight yesterday, I think, to a hundred at the high overnight a barrel. Closed at like ninety three dollars a barrel. Uh, gold and gold miners did a complete flip flop. Gold miners were up, you know, four percent, I think, uh, at one point uh, in the pre market, and they closed down a couple percent. Yeah, it's just <laughs> there's no there's no logic. I mean, it's it, it's it's a bizarre theater for a, a really, you know, uh, crazy day is the only way I can put it. All right, a bizarre theater. I think it's a good way to put it. And Mike, I, I and John, I want to talk to you guys both about the miners uh, in just a moment, because I think their activity was a real head scratcher, I think for most people. Um, but very quickly, I, I do wanna just sort of flag in, in, in more volatile markets like we have right now, and obviously the situation in Ukraine just really shook up the entire box of volatility. Um, but in a volatile market, you, you, you do have more opportunities to make money um, uh, and I'm talking more for sort of the, the really active investor here, um, not so much the long-term buy and hold investor, but of course we've been talking that the days of passive investing are, are largely gonna be you know, less applicable going forward and you're gonna need a more active approach. Um, and, and today was a really good example. So leading up to today, um, pretty much the S&P had done nothing but go down. The major indices had done nothing but go down since the beginning of January. Very few up days there. Um, we got into correction territory, as Mike said earlier, S&P down over 11%. And it probably was due for a relief rally prior to this, this uh, night's uh, activities. Um, then, of course, you know everything got just exploded by uh, Russia's incursion there. Um, but today, obviously, we hit some sort of important floor, and you know, we, we markets are now having a bit of a face ripper rally, and it's going to be interesting to see how long that carries through. Um, so, you know, folks that were sort of positioning for that reversal in the markets, well, if 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 they were, you know, positioned yesterday, they they probably did pretty well, actually. Um, today, given the huge downdraft in the markets. Um, but you, know, you, you had assets you could buy this morning that were worth an awful lot more by the end of the day. Um, and in particular, um, a number of, of Russian companies got hit extremely hard. And guys, I'm sure that's no surprise to anybody, right? But you've had some really high quality Russian companies um, you know, go on sale today by 30, 45 times 50%. Uh, I'm thinking of a couple of miners that uh, Rick Rule mentioned when he was on this program last that he thinks uh, have the best gold deposits in the world, uh, as well as uh, you know very large Russian energy companies. Uh, I don't want to mention the names here just because I don't want to be perceived as giving uh, personal financial advice, which is what I'm definitely not doing here. Um, but you had the ability to buy some of those um, those large uh, energy companies. Uh, you know, in the morning that were worth like 30% more by the end of the day. And these are companies with ridiculously low PEs. I'm talking like four 
uh, and having uh, dividend payment rates uh, somewhere in the six to 10% area. Now, of course, they've got huge country risk and Russia just proved overnight that country risk, you know, geopolitical risk is still very relevant in today's world. And who knows what's gonna happen going forward. But if this um, military incursion tends, it turns out to be relatively short-lived, if the dust settles over the next couple of months, and you know the multinational community begins to learn how to work together, and you know whatever new world order exists after you know the dust settles, uh, this may be a historic moment to be entering into some of these um, you know very excellent in terms of resources uh, companies like total world grade resource companies. So, Mike, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Um. Yeah, the, some of the moves were crazy. You're just taking a look at Russia, you know, for instance, just take a look at the, the ETF RSX. I mean, it's back to the COVID lows and it's back at multi-year lows. And so you mentioned some of the energy names in there. Yeah, they're, they're really, really cheap. Now, it's a big if. You say if it turns out to be a short-lived affair, um, maybe some of these are, 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 are good bottom fish plays. Maybe, yeah, we would proceed fairly carefully, but, um, you know, Emerging markets might be a better play. Emerging markets got hit pretty bad across the board, which um, you know, I think Russia is actually part of. It's uh, the emerging market index is more emerging Asia and, and South and Latin America than it is Russia, et cetera. But uh, emerging markets were down sharply this morning. Um, if you look at EEM, which is an ETF that tracks emerging markets, it was down around 45 or something at the low after being relatively weak uh, the last few weeks. So Emerging markets remain cheap, and um, we think that they're you know they remain attractive, and probably would be somewhere that we would direct the more conservative investor to just buy the entire you know maybe emerging market space versus trying to pick individual individual names. That being said, yeah, there was some fantastic bargains uh, that reversed by about thirty percent. I just want to say a couple things about this eye popping reversal, though. It was a big reversal. It was the biggest reversal since I believe the Paycheck Protection Program was, uh, was announced back in, in 2020. Uh, at, but, you know, just stepping back for a minute, just looking at some of my notes, the S&P was down 14% at the worst of it today and closed down 11%. Yes, that's a 3% reversal, but the S&P is only down 11%. Valuations are still very high, and we still haven't even had, in, in, in our opinion, the first leg down, if this is a bear market that's starting, we really haven't even had the first major, I don't think, panic day yet. We had a little whiff of it at the open or in the pre-market, but boy, this market basically bottomed at 9.30 a.m. And, and just went up all day. We haven't had a 90% down day since the top a few months ago. A 90% day is a day in which 90% of the stocks decline. Um, it's, a, it's a sign of capitulation or panic. We haven't seen any of that. Really, what we're seeing is an insatiable desire, insatiable desire to buy the dip. It still is here. It's alive and well. And who knows? This market may bounce for another couple of days or a couple of weeks. My guess is this is more like what we see early bear markets in other times in history, where you see these wild euphoric swings only to be um, you know, tested later on. Great. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think it's really important to underscore here that uh, sort of the whole reason why I wanted to bring this up was um, if our panel of esteemed uh, roundtable experts there is correct, and we have further to fall ahead, um, you know, that may be the right positioning for the long term, but you've got to still be aware of the fact that A, nothing moves in a straight line in the markets, and B, you know, a lot of the status quo is still alive and well. The buy the dip folks, they they won the day today, right? So you got to be careful for that. Um, given all the volatility folks, I just want to mention, um, if you don't follow me on Twitter, um, I'm pretty active during the days, but I was super active last night and this morning, kind of doing a lot of play-by-play, -play, both of the action, but also, you know, suggesting potential market outcomes for investors to keep in mind, uh, you know, as the action unfolded during the day. Um, if you have, you know, any interest in following that, the easiest way to do is just go to Twitter, follow me at, at Menlo Bear. And, uh, you know, you don't have to wait for a new video to come out. You can basically see in real time uh, what I and, and what I'm sharing uh, myself, but also what I'm sharing from 
a lot of the experts that I'm in communication with uh, throughout the day. All right. Um, well, Mike and John, uh, I'll let either one of you guys uh, pick up this football, but let's uh, talk about the miners before we close here. Uh, because you woke up this morning, gold was, you know, 1965, let's say, an ounce or whatever. You would have expected the miners to be screaming higher, even with the S&P down. Now they weren't. Um, and maybe you could say, okay, well, that's just because they're trading more like stocks today than the metals. Um, they seem to be schizophrenic that way. They usually tend to pick the worst. <laughs> but then as the S&P reversed, right, and went green, the miners just went lower and lower and lower. So it's kind of like they traded like stocks in the morning when stocks were down, and then they flipped to trade like metals as the metals came on down. So what's going on with the miners? Um, Mike, I see you nodding. So let's start with you. Yeah, it was, it, the miners acted like the worst of both worlds. You're right today. It's kind of disappointing. Um, let's not forget that the miners are still sharply up over the last few weeks. But I'm just looking at a chart of uh, GDX, the ETF that, you know, the, the largest ETF that holds major gold mining companies. It was trading at 36 or so pre-market. And, and the market opened at 930 and it literally dropped immediately a dollar, like within the first second. Is trading at 35. And then as the S&P gained steam throughout the day, it traded lower and lower and lower. And, you know, close at around $34, down only 67 cents on the day. Didn't the closing figures kind of mask how wild that swing was. Uh, but I, I think the jury is still out on gold, which is broken out of this, this bullish triangle that we've talked about so many times. It was a wild swing and a little disappointing to see the reversal. But if you step back and look at a weekly chart of gold, it broke through 1860, 1880 or so. It broke through to the upside from that bullish triangle. And yeah, it overshot this morning uh, on this news. But if you take out this candle, which I know you really can't do, but if you really step back and look, it's still a very bullish breakout. So we have to, we have to give it some time. Same thing with, with GDX, using that as a proxy for miners. It's sitting here at 34. We've really been consolidating at 34 to 35 for the last week or so. Yes, we did shoot to 36 uh, for a second this morning or so and in the pre-market, but it's probably just consolidating sideways here. And um, I don't think I'd get too excited about it yet. Yeah, I think that sometimes people get emotional and they, they project uh, what happened today into tomorrow and the next day too quickly. Uh, I would I would suggest a step back sometimes, take a look at a weekly chart. And those weekly charts are very constructive for both miners and for gold. All right, thanks. And yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned that we closed around 34 something today. Uh, people are, would be frustrated that it didn't hold its gains from the overnight, but it was trading at like 29 just like two weeks ago or something like that. So you got to keep it all in perspective, like you're saying. Um, so John, uh, anything else to add to that? Um, yeah, I guess it, it probably I'd like to leave it, weave it into uh, what we, we oftentimes culminate these conversations with you, Adam, about kind of what your guest had to say in terms about um, where they see presently, you know, good places to be allocated. And if, if it's okay with you, I'll pivot a little to that because because I think a common thread uh, uh, among your 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 guests, uh, Stephanie, Lynn, and um, Danielle, uh, at least you know they were all very much uh, bullish on gold, um, uh, gold specifically, um, but also resources uh, and hard assets in general. Um, um, so so you know to what to Mike's point, you know this this bizarre kind of round trip action today. Um, and again, to, to, to what I, the way I opened up the comments today, the comments of your guests were 20, you know, 48 hours ago before this actual invasion took place. And I think those, those comments are every bit as you know, um, appropriate and, and accurate and, and uh, well-intentioned or well-incited as they, are, they were two days ago or today after the invasion. So the invasion and today's um, market gymnastics, I think, don't change that calculus. And they all, for, for the bigger picture, reasons, you know, supported, uh, you know, suggested gold as being a very good place to be, you know, with the monetary regimes being forced to change credit. Um, you know, there's, there's amazing credit uh, excesses built into the system, you know, when the Fed went out and, you know, basically grandfathered in triple B, you know, basically, you know, uh, 
you know, kind of the worst of uh, uh, the, the the corporate debt that you know that's not in, in junk status. Um, you know, uh, there's there's in effect in effect a lot of investment grade credit out there that's 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 really junk masking masking masquerading as investment grade. And you know, typically when credit strains happen, and and you know, certainly a recession would do that. Um, you know, uh, I think it was Stephanie that talked about uh, very likely a profits recession at a time when most analysts are projecting 8% across the board earnings uh, percent increases in the S&P and in some sectors, consumer discretionary. I think she said 40% was the street consensus. The market's really not pricing in an earnings recession. And you start to think about what, you know, um, lower earnings and, and pressures on profitability and debt service uh, with these companies that have loaded up on, on, on debt. That's where you know gold can be a really really important insurance policy hedge. Um, so that's just that's just one thing I wanted to call out in the, in those comments to to pick up on what Mike talked about with gold. Well, I appreciate you doing that, and, and that's what I wanted is I wanted that kind of grounding context because we often talk on these uh, programs about the emotional state that that a lot of investors make decisions from, and on a day like today where you know. It started where you're like, well, this is why I own gold, right? It's crisis prevention and gold's up like crazy. Uh, it's it's doing what I expected. And then it then it disappoints you. And then the miners do something completely different than what you think they're going to do. Uh, you know, you get the potential for people to just sort of get disgusted and throw the baby out with the bathwater because they're frustrated in the moment and not necessarily looking at the bigger picture. So thanks for that grounding there, John. All right, folks, well, look, um, it's things are getting very interesting. And wherever they go from here, we'll be tracking it together on this program with John and Mike. I have said this at probably every video I've ever recorded on Wealthion, uh, but it's particularly germane here. Uh, we highly recommend that unless you are a very seasoned, experienced uh, investor, uh, that uh, it's best to be navigating this, this increasingly turbulent and uncertain future leveraging the expertise of a professional financial advisor who understands all the macro issues going on that our roundtable talked about and that John and I uh, just described here. If you've got a good one, great, stick with them. They're literally worth their weight in gold. We've been talking a lot about gold, but those folks are priceless. Um, if you don't have a good one or you're looking for an additional informed opinion from another um, uh, financial advisor of that uh, high quality cut, uh, feel free to schedule a free consultation with the uh, financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. John and Mike and their firm are in that mix. Uh, it uh, doesn't cost you anything, totally free. There's no commitment, no expectation to work with these guys. It's truly no strings attached. It's just a public service where we want to help as many people as possible get help navigating this incredibly challenging time for investors. Uh, if you'd like to set one up, just stick around at the end of the video. It's coming up in just a couple of seconds where we tell you how to do that. And it only takes a couple of seconds to do. Um, if you can, if you've enjoyed this phenomenal roundtable discussion that we had and would like to see more of that roundtable and more high-level guest experts like that brought onto the program, please do me a favor and just take a second to support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it all right john and mike whatever happens from here we will be tracking it together on this channel thanks so much for joining me this week and everybody else thanks for watching thanks once again adam um, we'll certainly be plugged into the machinations of these markets uh, short and longer term and we look forward to speaking with you about this again next week Thanks again, Adam. I'm sure we're going to have a lot, uh, a lot more interesting things to talk about in the weeks and months ahead. So thanks again. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type, the kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, 
When you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.